Secrets and Spies presents Espresso Martini with Chris Carr and Matt Fulton. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Espresso Martini, our delayed first episode of 2024, which already looks like it's going to be a dramatic year. Stressful year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's been this time last month, it was Christmas Day, um, which, uh, yeah, I miss it already. Uh, Christmas feels like a very distant memory. Um, I know. So, yeah, Matt, how are you doing? How was your Christmas break? Uh, it was good. It was it was pretty chill. It was uneventful. Um, yeah, now here we are on the eighty sixth day of January. <laughs> um, yeah, back after back after a little while off. I mean, we've had we mm. we've had stuff out, but you know, we haven't done yeah. our thing in a while. So it's good to be back. Yeah, we haven't done this in ages. because the last time we did this was the beginning of December. I know. Um, and so it's been. I dread to think how many weeks it's been. Somebody can print it. It feels like it's been seven or eight weeks almost, but probably, probably, yeah, seven ish, probably. Yeah. 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 There's so much that we've like sort of like missed, or like I I know this episode is sort of just like a catch up kind of backlog Mm. thing, stuff that Mm. has been going on for a couple of weeks. We're just sort of now getting to, and there's a, there's, I don't know, a few more things. We were looking at the articles for this, and I was like, that would be a good thing to talk about, but there just isn't time. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, no, this episode yeah. nearly happened two weeks ago, and then uh, unfortunately, some uh, some of my day job got in the way of things. And Pesky day job. Today's episode is a completely different episode to what last the previous episode would have been. Yes, but, because so much has happened since then. We had like the strikes against the Houthis yes. and all sorts of exciting things, which we will go into. So. Um, today we will be looking at the strikes against the Houthi rebels who've been attacking ships in the Red Sea. We're also going to look at the hunt for Hamas's spokesperson. We're going to be looking at Chinese spies recruiting Western politicians. We're also going to be looking at more information on the Chinese spy balloon, which was, you know, we covered the anniversary of that as well on the 4th of Feb. That's the anniversary of it being shot down. Um, so I'm not sure how I'm going to mark that day, but there we go. The spy balloon <laughs> that then... floated right into our hearts. <laughs> oh, dear. I missed that weekend. Yeah. I enjoyed that weekend. I probably shouldn't have done, but I did. <laughs> But there we go. Um, and then uh, what else? Oh yeah, and we've got the um, and we've got this plot to kill Iranian journalists. So an Iranian operative was arrested in London in connection to a plot last year in which he was targeting potentially targeting journalists. So he might have been doing sort of reconnaissance. We'll go into that. Then after this jam-packed espresso martini, um, we will be moving on to our Patreon-only show called Extra Shots. On that, we'll be looking at reports of China rebuilding its nuclear weapons testing facility. We've also got the retirement of MI5's longest-serving member. We've got celebrities tricked into making propaganda videos for Russia. We've also got the concerns of a former CIA officer about Trump returning to the White House and what that might mean for the CIA. And then we're going to wrap up on the death of Gaston Glock, who created the legendary Glock pistol that's favoured by both sides of the law. So if you want to get access to Extra Shot, you would just need to go to patreon.com forward slash secrets and spies and pick the subscription level that works best for you. And depending on which subscription level you pick, you either get a free coffee cup or a set of coasters. So Matt, I think we will head off to Yemen and I'm going to hand over to you to talk to us a little bit about these sort of Houthi rebels who've been attacking ships. Anywhere else we could go on vacation? (laughs) 
<laughs> well, um, Havana's probably quite nice, but I think you're probably not allowed there still. Um, uh, where else could we go? I don't know. I don't know if I could just go to... I, I don't know if I can just... I I know people who went on like a school trip a couple of years ago. Oh, nice. Um, I don't know. I would, I would, I would love to go to Havana if I could, you know. I don't know if you need. I don't. You might need like. A, I'm totally filibustering this episode right now. Um, I don't know if you need like a, like a special reason to go. I know usually mm. for a while that was sort of like, yeah. To 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 go, you needed like an actual reason, not just I want to go uh, hang out. Yeah, yeah. In Havana, I'm not sure if that's the case well, still or not. I don't know. My reasons would be um, probably the cigars, the rum, the Cuban beans and rice, because I really like that, and Cuban coffee. Are those valid reasons? Those would be my <laughs> reasons, too. I don't think the feds list those as valid reasons. Damn it. Oh, well, it's more yeah, a problem for you. I think I'm okay on my passport. I know. But... I know. I know. <laughs> oh, well. <sighs> All right. Anyway, Yemen, here we go. Um, so, yeah, we're uh, drawing from an article uh, in... Um, uh, the Drives, uh, The War Zone by uh, Howard Altman. So here's a couple of key points from it, and then I will hand it, I'll, yeah, hand it over to you, Chris. Mm-hmm. So the U.S. and U.K. conducted new airstrikes against Houthi targets in Yemen with support from Australia, Bahrain, Canada, and the Netherlands. The strikes targeted a Houthi underground storage site and locations associated with the Houthis' missile and air surveillance capabilities. The action was in response to Houthi attacks on international and commercial shipping, including anti-ship ballistic missile and unmanned aerial system attacks. The UK Ministry of Defense stated that RAF Typhoon fighters used Paveway 4 precision-guided bombs to strike military sites, enabling Houthi attacks on international shipping. The Pentagon named the operation against the Houthis Operation Poseidon Archer. Good name. Yeah, strong. Yeah, strong I like name. it. Sounds like, yeah. <laughs> uh... The Biden administration is planning a sustained military campaign targeting the Houthis after earlier strikes failed to halt their attacks on maritime commerce. European Union member states have given initial backing to a naval mission to protect ships from Houthi attacks in the Red Sea. The U.S. has carried out preemptive strikes against Houthi missiles and previous airstrikes hit over 60 targets in Houthi-controlled Yemen. Concerns are raised about the potential for an open-ended military operation derailing Yemen's fragile peace and involving the U.S. in another unpredictable Middle Eastern conflict. The recent strikes involved Tomahawk land attack cruise missiles, or TLAMs, manned aircraft from the U.S. Navy and U.K. armed forces, and were separate from Operation Prosperity Guardian. But not, not, as, not as cool a name. No. Uh, <laughs> a, a defensive coalition in the Red Sea. The strikes were considered successful in destroying Houthi missiles, uh, unmanned aerial systems, and weapons storage areas. The U.S. military officials did not specify how long the strikes would continue, but emphasized the aim, the aim to de-escalate and restore calm in the Red Sea. An unrelated interdiction mission on January 11th resulted in two Navy SEALs presumed dead after falling yeah. into the water during a nighttime boarding operation off Somalia. Yeah, yeah. So, Chris, what do you what do you think about all this? Yeah, well, first of all, that Navy SEAL story is very sad. I've been sort of following yeah. that for a few weeks. Um, have they actually recovered the bodies now? I've lost track. Or they still presume um, missing and dead? I haven't paid that much attention to the stat story itself. Mm. I believe they were. So it was a visit board search and seizure operation, so VBSS, uh, that you know SEALs do all the time. It's really like what they're made mm. for. Um, on a uh, a ship suspected of carrying arms off the coast of Somalia, and they were sort of like climbing up the hull. Um, one seal fell in. This was a nighttime uh, uh, operation. 
one seal fell in, another seal went in after mm. um, him, and then uh, they they couldn't recover either one, which is sort of like if I've heard before in like drills in the Navy for like man overboard drills that if you fall off a ship during the day, mm. there's like a 60 to 70% chance that you'll survive. If you fall in at night, it goes down drastically. That I mean, you could be like right there bobbing around in the water, and they very easily might not um, see you. I don't know. So to 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 answer your question, I don't know if they recovered bodies or not, or if the search had just gone for X amount of time, and then you know, just biology math, it gets to mm. a point that like they're you're not going to find them, you know, mm. and you they're just mm. presumed to be lost. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. terrible. I mean, it's the thing. So. Uh, talk about death and stuff so i mean i had a i think i was talking to you off air about this i had an interesting conversation with a friend a few weeks ago who made the statement that well the houthis haven't killed anybody so why are we bombing them and need i remind people that firing missiles at ships and even hijacking ships is dangerous and if not stopped it will lead to the death of crews working on those ships well and, those actions yeah. are 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 attempts to kill people yeah, on those exactly. ships exactly the only reason they haven't succeeded is because of the u.s navy and the royal navy and the, them shooting down the missiles or drones um that are attacking said ships so um yeah and i've noticed sort of again um yeah there's been a lot of pro-palestinian um supporters not all but a few who have sort of taken the sides of the houthis um against the u.s and uk strikes and they believe that the Houthis are just attacking the ships out of solidarity with the Palestinians and that the West's only interest is to avoid shipping delays to Amazon. That's become a new kind of... Um, somebody said that on, I think it was Sky News the other day, and it's becoming this sort of clip that's been shown around. Certainly on my Instagram, I've seen it by a few people. Um, Such a reductive... I know. And just like, just kind of just playing to the lowest common denominator, just yeah. dumb summation yeah. of the whole thing. Tell me know? about it. Tell me, from educated people who share this. And, you know, attacking ships is against international law. And for so I, I don't know why it always falls onto the US and UK to enforce international law, but it has. And, yeah. um, you know, and these strikes, to some extent not perfect but they are kind of what you would call a proportionate response to the actions because they're trying to target the houthis capability to launch attacks and they're trying to attack um sort of target their radar facilities that obviously help with the missiles targeting and so on i i, I know i can imagine president biden wants to avoid getting the u.s committed to a full-blown campaign that would have like boots on the ground because yeah. we've all saw Iraq and Afghanistan, and we I think most presidents sensibly would want to avoid that. Um, however, <laughs> um, you know, the problem about these sort of campaigns is um, you don't always have full control over everything and things can escalate. And all it takes really, I think, because the Houthis have said they're going to um, retaliate, and certainly you've got a lot of um, people who've been sympathetic to the Palestinian cause who seem to be siding with them. So there is a concern that there might be a terrorism connection to said retaliation. Um, and so could something terrible happen that might force the US to do more? Um, you know, certainly Iran, who who back the Houthis, have been quite busy. Not only are they, you know, linked to the October 7th attacks, um, their proxies have been attacking US forces in Iraq and Syria. 
And obviously they're backing the Houthis who are disrupting international shipping and basically causing a much bigger crisis um, and, you know, leading the Middle East further and further into a situation where there could be some sort of proper full-scale conflict again, all in an election year. So it's yeah. it's quite um, an interesting cocktail of things going on and very disappointing to see some people's reaction to it on the left being, oh, it's just all about, you know, dealing with Amazon delays. Um, and it's a lot more complicated than that. And people will talk about inequality, um, you know, some of the goods that are being shipped having to go around the... Um, uh, go via South Africa now by the Cape of Good Hope. And that's burning more fuel and extending the journey time of things, which will mean the prices of the items they're carrying will go up, um, which will further go into inequality. And on top of that, they're burning more fuel, which is more dangerous for, well, not dangerous, but more uh, is worse for the environment. So, so there's an environmental issue here as well, if you want to throw it in there. Yeah, it's just a real interesting mix of things going on, really. So I, I think you and I, because we've been watching this Houthi thing go on over December and, and before, we've kind of been waiting for the US and UK to just do something because it feels like that um, they've been just swatting these missiles and, and um, drones and it's not really doing much. Um, and, and this felt like the, nev the inevitable next step was going to be strikes against the Houthis. And I think many people have said it's it took them... A very long time to do that and i think i see biden as a very careful and um deliberate person um and i think he was just was again like we were saying earlier trying to avoid it escalating even further after the content you know after the dreadful right. october the 7th attacks and then obviously israel's um response to that it it could easily have blown up much bigger um so so i kind of see why biden was cautious i mean i again i've supported biden's caution on ukraine um, and then feel like maybe now they should, um, you know, not be less cautious about Ukraine, but that's a whole different matter. So, Matt, I'll hand it back to you as I ramble on there. But I, those are sort of my, my cocktail of thoughts there. Cocktail seems to be the word today. Maybe subconsciously yes. I want one. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I'm on the name the of the show. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, what time is it over there? It's uh, 418 or 1618 okay. in military parlance. Yeah. <laughs> the sun is past the yard mm, arm. Mm. Let loose. For me, I got <laughs> I got a ways to go yeah, still. No, anyway. My cocktail at the moment is coffee and then a glass of water. So it's a very exciting <laughs> cocktail right now. But there we go. <laughs> yeah. All right. Anyway. Um, so I, I think for me, it's... If, you know, if I'm trying to sort of judge in my own mind, mm. the success or rationality of this operation. I do think, I understand Biden's cautiousness, you know, of, of being deliberate and thoughtful and making sure you're not doing, I mean, like it was sort of, uh, it, this was, I don't think this was meant as a, as a compliment at, at the time, but, you know, if, if you look at mm. Biden as sort of the third term of Obama, yeah. and in, in some respects, it, it kind of is. But, I mean, one of when, when Obama first came into office, it was kind of like, again, this was, I don't think this was meant as, 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 sort, of a compl as mm. sort of a compliment, but his entire foreign policy was basically like, don't do stupid shit. Mm. 
Which know? makes sense because yes, we, I mean, yeah, we don't want knee jerk reactions. We saw where that got us. So do we need that right. again? You know, coming after mm. Bush and the Iraq War, and you know, the neoconservative, like we're going to bring freedom mm. to the Middle East and all that yeah. kind of jazz. It does make sense, but at the same time, you sort of like, I mean. Obama was so like famously with like the red line mm. in Syria and just so just wrapping yourself around the axle of, you know, thinking like, what am I going to do? What are, what are we, you yeah. know, what's the best, what's the most responsible thing? Should we, you, yeah. you talk yeah. Yeah. endlessly to the point that, you know, when you do end up responding, mm. it's either inadequate or, or it's too late. I mean, mm. that was a, a serious and I think justifiable concern. Mm of the Obama administration's foreign policy, specifically in in the second term. And I mean, to, to be honest, I see I see shades of that in Biden's response to what's, you know, to this new conflict in in the Middle East. That's not to say that I think I think there's some merit to that for sure. Um, but I, I think he has run the risk of doing sort of like too little, too late, or I mean, you, okay, you you see this again in in the sort of tortured process of should we send Abrams tanks to Ukraine? Yeah, should we send yeah. F-16s? Should we send um uh 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 Attackums missiles? You know, and you just talk about this ad nauseum for months and months and months, and everyone knows eventually you're going to come to the decision that you're yeah. going to fucking send them anyway. Yeah, yeah. That when you actually do, the Russians are so dug in on like four different on four different levels that it's not as effective as it would have been if you had just done it in the first place Mm. but the same point i see the calculus of okay we are taking a stick and poking it in the eye of a nuclear power Mm. in ukraine that's a concern maybe we should stop and think about that and Mm. be really Mm. sure about what we're doing here or on this, you know, you could very easily spark off a massive regional war mm. in the Middle East, you know? So I I I I I see I see both sides here, yeah, right? Yeah, definitely. And the Houthis are backed by Iran, so by attacking them, you are attacking an Iranian proxy, which is gonna have yeah. effects. You know, you unless- could easily there are Iranian advisors on the ground, like hand in glove, working with the Houthis, and it's very easy that I don't think we're we're I think we're trying to avoid killing them. And we do have a back channel with the Iranians as this goes on, which is the right and responsible thing to do, mm. you know, to sort of have that back channel open with them as we're doing this stuff to avoid issues like that, you know. Um, but okay, so going back to going back to to Yemen and sort of analyzing the effectiveness of this of this strategy i think it's a matter of the objective you know so i see four potential objectives here in in you know in attacking the houthis here the first is are we retaliating for specific attacks on shipping right mm-hmm. which would be um uh okay so like uh, the Houthis fired a missile and struck this specific cargo ship. So we're going to then launch strikes to take out that firing position, you know, which it's just sort of tit for tat and you're never sort of getting ahead of the issue. You're always just being kind of reactive 
and responding and you're not in the driver's seat for the mm-hmm. operation. You mm-hmm. know, you're just responding to whatever the Houthis do and you're you're not going to really get anywhere, especially if the Houthis are like, yeah, fuck you, we're going to keep doing it, right? Second one, you could preemptively strike to prevent specific attacks on shipping, which would require a considerable persistent intelligence presence over uh, the Arabian Sea, the Red Sea, the Gulf of Oman, over Yemen proper to be able to see signs of, you know, this missile system being put into this sort of firing position. And we see that, okay, they're probably going to attack this ship or these selections of ships at this Mm. part of the Red Sea. And before they're able to fire that missile off, we're going to strike it on the pad. You know what I mean? That requires a considerable amount of, of, of intelligence ISR kind of investment in the region, right? So that's, that's one strategy. The third is you destroy the Houthis' ability to conduct attacks on shipping at all, which would require a considerable amount of force, right, to just basically like sustained airstrikes probably some limited special operations raids mm-hmm. over the beach, yeah. right? To, uh, yeah, degrade their capabilities to be able to do this in the first place, right? So you take out uh, the radars, the missiles, the depots, command and control assets, so that they're just unable to do this. And even then, you're going to have as only a specific window of time that they're going to remain unable to do this because the sure. Iranians are going to resupply them. Yeah, yeah, unless you right? can get the resupply routes too. I mean, the the third option at the moment does sound like the more effective one. It does, <laughs> but it but at the same time, it does require a lot of um, investment of time and effort. The fourth is you remove the Houthis from power, which requires an open ended war, so to speak. And there's no appetite for that whatsoever. Yeah. It would definitely incur uh, casualties on our side, which there is no appetite for whatsoever. And that's the most risky in terms of an escalatory, like mm. you could potentially mm. spark off a huge regional war in the Middle East. So I think to what you said earlier, I think somewhere on option three mm. is the sweet spot. Yeah. Um. But I think bottom line is the worst course of action would be to do nothing at all. Yeah. No, no, it would be. It would be. Um. And then the other flip side to that being regime change. Um which yeah. I think history and recent history has shown us when an outside force does regime change. It doesn't um, work. It doesn't work unless you go full-blown into it and have a um, a preset kind of person to be the figurehead of it, uh, and then they'll have to be ruthless in dealing with um, opposition. Um, but again, that yeah. just leads to another terrible situation. It's never a good idea. As for the issue of, of escalation, mm. I mean, th- I think the chance for something to go wrong, whether mm. that's in Yemen, Iraq, Lebanon, or all three, I think that'll be present um, as long as the situation in Gaza remains unresolved. Mm. I mean, mm. honestly, I think at the end of the day, the best way to shut down these attacks mm. in the Red Sea is to get a permanent ceasefire in Gaza, mm. Mm. right? Mm. And that the Houthis' stated rationale for doing these attacks then also stop, right? And then if they keep it up, I mean, at least you have a much better argument that, yeah, they're full of shit and, you know. Oh, yeah, 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 definitely. Right, so there's that. Um, uh, but I, I, I think generally the issue of, of escalation and trying to avoid escalation has been managed by the administration mm. fairly well. Mm. Something could still go wrong easily, for sure. I'm not discounting that. But I mean, to be honest, the only, the only time since October 7th that I've been seriously concerned, and I've said this to you on here and offline, 
the only time since October 7th that I've been seriously concerned about a, a large regional conflagration really getting out of control was the night that that uh, Islamic Jihad missile fell back on that hospital in Gaza, and you had all those protests all across mm-hmm. the Middle East. That was the only night that I was seriously concerned that something bad was going on. I mean, otherwise... It was a bit on par with... Do you remember the protests against the film about Muslims that led to the Benghazi situation? Yes. It was a bit on par with that, wasn't it? Yeah, it did. Mm. It, it it felt a lot like that. Um, I, I'm no... I'm not saying you got to hand it to the Iranians or 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 Hezbollah. You absolutely don't have to hand it to them. But if they wanted a massive regional war by now, mm. we would have had one. Yeah, you know, the, there have been plenty of opportunities to just to just go buck wild, and and they haven't they haven't taken it. Hassan Nasrallah, the Secretary General of Hezbollah, specifically has sort of repeatedly said, you know, we're not we're not going all out for this, you know. Um, I I think honestly I think Netanyahu and his sort of closest allies are fucking arsonists, and and the sooner Israel has elections and puts a new government in office, that's not him. Well, yeah, that'll yeah. ratchet down yeah things a lot. The mm. potential for mm. you know mm. Netanyahu to wake up with 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 mm. low blood sugar one morning and say I'm gonna nuke Beirut, you know. Well, this um, is it. He he um. Yeah, not only did he, you know, did the worst terrorist attack in Israel's history happen on his watch, you know, then he's now gone as far as saying he has um, zero intention to help create a Palestinian state, which is disrupting any potential peace plan. Um, sure. So it's like Netanyahu, Netanyahu's, and also the Israeli reaction, which has been huge, um, and I would cautiously say cautiously i mean i is an overreaction i think i think it's a disproportionately been major overreaction they've kind of fallen into what what tom parker called the terrorist trap you know they've lost all moral authority but a lot of people are very anti-israel now much more than they were before october the 7th i mean oh yeah um so i think the israeli reaction uh, just has put fuel on that fire on that issue i don't I don't blame Israel for wanting to do something, uh, but I think torching all of Gaza was not the way to do it. Um, but at the same time, I'm not a military strategist who could say, well, what they should have done was this, because I have no idea how you deal with the situation. And obviously, as we still speak, there are still hostages in Hamas's captivity. Um, and, and I don't think um, bombing the bejesus out of Gaza necessarily guarantees those hostages are going to come back. So, yeah, it's a very, very difficult situation at the moment and i think you know yeah i think as far as yemen is concerned though an open-ended us uk involvement in yemen is 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 not wise i think we need to decide what our objective mm, is mm, let it be realistic mm, get in get it done get out yeah 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 what is it and and um if they don't do something um i think it will escalate Yemen is the famously the site of the uss coal attack which was an interesting piece of terrorist history because i don't know if you know this but i was reading a really interesting book called the black banners by ali sufon and apparently the lack of reaction by the americans to the uss cold attack led to 9-11 and the reason it, it led did. to 9-11 is because al-qaeda had financial backers and they needed to appear serious to warrant people backing them and after the uss coal attack being a kind of a damp squib on the reaction front 
They needed something else to get the US to respond the way they wanted to. And that's what led to 9-11. So I guess the, you know, if we keep ignoring things, um, then sometimes they come back to haunt us in terrible ways. And so I think it would be very irresponsible of, of um, the US to completely ignore the Yemen situation. I know some people would like them to, but I think that would be uh, really a bad idea. So, yeah. So there we go. Yeah. That's an interesting one. That Anything one. else you wanted to add on the on the Houthis here? Um, no, I think I think that pretty much covers the Houthis um, for now. <laughs> I'm sure. We'll, I'm sure there'll be more to say about them in the future. Quite possibly. Yeah, we'll we'll probably definitely come back to this next yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. Take definitely. a little bit more of a look at it, maybe. Definitely. So now we've got the hunt for the Hamas spokesperson. Do you want to have a chat about that? Yeah, so uh, this next article we're drawing from is called The Determined Hunt for Hamas's Most Mysterious Kingpin by Shannon Vavra. I believe that's how you say her last name, Shannon Vavra, at The Daily Beast. So here's a couple key points from the article. Israel claims to have identified the anonymous spokesperson for Hamas, known as Abu Ubaidah. The IDF revealed the alleged identity as Hudaifa Kalut, accusing him of hiding behind a red kafia and engaging in violent activities. Israel's announcement is part of a broader strategy to conduct targeted killings abroad, aiming to weaken Hamas psychologically. Naming and shaming Abu Ubaidah is seen as a way to disrupt Hamas, achieve a PR victory, and exert psychological impact on the group. The effort is likely intended to send a message to Hamas that Israel can track down its fighters and leadership anywhere. The unmasking may also serve to bolster domestic support for Israel's fight against Hamas and tarnish the group's reputation. Speculation uh, suggests that Abu Ubaidah may be a symbolic brand rather than a single individual with a team creating propaganda for Hamas. Even if Abu Ubaidah is captured or killed, Hamas could potentially replace him with another militant challenging Israel's claims. Mm. Abu Ubaidah was rumored to be injured in an Israeli attack, but released a statement indicating his survival after a temporary truce. The truce ended with both Israel and Hamas accusing each other of breaking the ceasefire. Chris, what do you think about Abu Ubaidah? Yeah, I can understand why the Israelis want to target him, um, because they got him, it would have this sort of huge psychological impact on Hamas and its leaders and its followers. I'm not entirely clear on the legality of killing spokespeople for regimes um, and terrorist organizations, but I assume that they're classed as a kind of collaborator or combatant, and they can be seen as a legitimate military target. But, um, you know, anybody who's a legal expert, feel free to drop me an email to tell me otherwise. Um, then I'm also intrigued by this idea that Abu Ubaidah might not be one person, but could be um, many people, uh, and it could lead to this sort of Spartacus-type situation in which suddenly many people claim to be Abu Ubaidah, which would then have the reverse psychological impact as um, Abu yeah. Ubaidah would be seen as somebody who'd never be killed, never be silenced. In a way, a bit like ISIS, the brand lives on and probably will live on forever as the formal group dies off. But all someone has to do is say that they are ISIS and do something terrible, um, which has happened with many lone wolf actors. So ISIS kind of lives on even if the group itself, certainly in Iraq, were decimated. And then on a previous episode, we spoke about Mossad and other Israeli units who've expressed an intention to hunt down and kill Hamas members connected to October the 7th. I think in real life, that's going to be hard to achieve, especially if Hamas members move to the US or Europe, where assassination by an allied or hostile intelligence services is illegal um, and would have to be conducted under the noses of some of the world's top domestic intelligence services, namely FBI, MI5, etc. But, you know, once the identity of uh, a member of Hamas is known, 
then it could become this sort of waiting game for that target who may be hiding in Europe or America to hop on a plane to a location that fits into sort of Mossad's favor. Then things could change. So, so yeah, so there's a lot of interesting sort of things there, really. Um, but I think this idea of we're going to be able to kill them all, I just don't think it's realistic. No, I, I think it's interesting to see this like the naming and shaming of this guy who 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 we think this guy is but who who they think this guy is mm. um it's it's interesting to see that as part of a broader effort to target Hamas's leadership including their leadership outside of Gaza um which i mean like i said i think before the ground invasion even began that uh, to me anyway like the targeted killings of specific key individuals coupled with special operations raids and and and, and limited airstrikes should have been the primary strategy here from the beginning rather than just burning down all of Gaza. Yeah. But I think what's most interesting to me is that, you know, as you said, that Abu Ubaidah might be more of like a title or like a, they call it like a Cunha or a, or a, or a nom de guerre that sort of rotates from spokesman to spokesperson. Or, yeah, I mean, what's to say that like if they mm. did actually kill the guy who was, you know, really Abu Ubaidah, that there's not some other dude with a red kefia scarf that comes out and says, I'm, I'm, I'm Abu Abida and you didn't get me at all, you know? Um, it's an interesting concept to have it sort of like a rotating sort of, it's almost like a, it feels sort of like an internet personality kind of thing, you know, mm, like a, mm, like a, like mm. a anonymous or something, you know, that yeah. like, um, I never really considered that before, but it's a very interesting, again, I don't think we the Israelis, the, the Israelis seem to believe it's this one specific guy. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's just an interesting, it's an interesting thought that it's a team of people or just you know whoever is Hamas's spokesperson at the time. This is what they call themselves. It's very, I don't know, mouth of Sarani. Well, yeah. So the the um, Abu Abida story is an interesting one. We'll have to keep an eye on, see what happens with that, and. Um... I guess it's hope for a lot of people's sake that lots of people don't start getting killed um, because the Israelis think that they're Abu Abida and it turns out to be multiple people. So we will keep an eye on that one. Let me say mm. unequivocally right now, I am not Abu Abida. <laughs> Neither am I. <laughs> it's a bit like, um, do you remember Zodiac? Um, I'm not Paul Avery. Yeah. There's going to be some badges soon coming out <laughs> saying I'm not Paul Avery. I'm not Abu Abida. <laughs> Oh, dearie me, dearie me. But there we go. Well, let's take a quick break, and then we'll be right back. So um, let's look at some Chinese spies who have allegedly been recruiting European politicians in a operation to divide the west so this is from the financial times this article um, and the link will be in the show notes so apparently chinese spies have allegedly been running a far-right belgian politician named frank Krailman as an intelligent asset for more than three years this case has shown how beijing has conducted influence operations in an effort to shape political discussions in europe on topics like hong kong's democracy crackdown and the Uyghur persecution in Xinjiang. Daniel Wu, an intelligence officer for the Ministry of State Security, asked Krailman to sway European politicians into publicly stating that the US and UK undermined European energy security. 
Whilst most big countries do engage in spying, the MSS, Ministry of State Security Operation in Europe, highlights one of the defining features of Chinese espionage, which is widespread influence operations aimed at shaping political debate that span from Ottawa, London and Canberra. Washington has repeatedly warned of covert efforts by Beijing to interfere with elections. Wu's operation apparently spanned several countries, including Poland, Romania, and focused on manipulating academics, policymakers, business leaders, and politicians. So Kralman, who was a former Belgian senator, was recruited remotely, and despite the concerns over his recruitment, his attempts to actually fulfil Chinese requests, such as opposing a resolution against the Uyghur genocide, and arranging a pro-China article has actually had limited success. So, um, yeah, this is an interesting one. Again, obviously, this is still an ongoing case, so we don't know 100% for sure if Frank Krellman actually was a Chinese asset. I think they're still determining that. But um, it certainly is um, a similar case to other ones that we've talked about. So, Matt, I'll come to you, and then, and then I'll add some extra thoughts there. Any thoughts for you on this one? What's up with a far-right politician trying to benefit the Chinese? I just don't, from a sort of yeah. philosophical, political standpoint, I don't get, I mean, like, okay, like, mice, I don't know, this is, this article doesn't talk about any sort of, like, financial benefit, right? Oh, no, not yet, no. Where on mice, where on that sort of, you know, money, ide- uh, money ideology, coercion, ego, where would he fall? Uh, it seems to me I don't know I don't know this guy, oh. but like a far right pi- politician ideologically working with the Chinese government would be unless you're just an idiot would just mm. not seem palatable. I don't know. No. Yeah, because with the Russians, because as we've said before, the Russians sort of have linked themselves quite well to far right ideology, right. represent themselves as the savior of the white Christian world. They are far right themselves. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So there's a logical kind of ideological step. Um, so maybe that takes ideology off the table, um, and so that leaves money, coercion, and ego. Um, you know, um, certainly in the UK, there was a scandal. Let's get my notes back. There was a scandal just only a few years back involving a lady named Christine Lee, who MI5 issued an alert about because she had established links to the Communist Party, and she'd be making donations to certain MPs. And it was seen as a sign of foreign interference. So maybe, maybe this guy is a bit, you know, typically all these far right politicians are actually quite low level politicians in the real world. Um, and I don't know much about Belgian politics. And I for, forgive me for not double checking, I just ran out of time. But he might be quite a low level politician and somebody somewhere might have stroked his ego a little bit. Um, and he suddenly felt like he was becoming a bigger player than he actually mm. was. And that also might explain why he hasn't been particularly successful. Um, and um, yeah, because it, it's the other interesting thing as well. When a, a foreign agent looks at politicians in the West, if they, unless they have a full understanding of where that politician sits in the grand scheme of things, right. they can end up wasting a lot of resources on something right. that's useless. Like you're, yeah. Then, yeah, because I think I read yeah, yeah, in Oleg Gordievsky's book, no, um, he talks a bit about like how the KGB um, would avoid certain far-left politicians because they saw them as a waste of resources. How would you feel being one of those far-left politicians? <laughs> you know, like you, you want to be, be as useful an idiot as you possibly yeah. can be, 
But then you see that they're like, no, you're not. You don't like that must be so soul crushing. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And funny enough, I don't know. quite a few because um, Gordievsky made claims about Michael Foote, who was a labor leader. There's quite a few people on the far left who really hate Oleg Gordievsky. And I do wonder if there's an element of that they feel a bit disappointed. <laughs> I don't know by what's Maybe. come out. I don't know. It's an interesting. One. There's, Maybe. A, there's a real deep hatred. But there we go. Um, I mean, mm. there's a quote in here that uh, Krailman's handler, Wu, wrote to him in a text message. He said, our purpose is to divide the U.S.-European relationship, which to me is the whole ballgame yeah. right there. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's old, that's that's it. That, that's why they're up to these shenanigans, you know, like we've talked about previously, like Chinese operations inside the U.K. Essentially, it, 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 it's to, yes, gain influence and sympathy with people who the Chinese believe will be in positions of influence inside UK and and European politics, but also to drive a wedge between the US and and Europe. Yeah. Which, if you think back to, I mean, during during the Trump administration, and then in the you know heartburn of of anticipating perhaps a second Trump administration, you've seen a lot of comments from like uh, Emmanuel Macron. In France, saying essentially that you know Europe should have rather than uh, antagonizing the Chinese or standing staunchly against them as the U.S. would, and as the U.S. would no doubt want Europe to do, Europe should have a a healthy, cooperative economic relationship with the Chinese, and ultimately that boils down to we don't know or believe if the U.S. can be a credible partner going ahead in the future. So we have to hedge our bets somewhere, you know, um, which I think goes to show the stupidity on our side fuels these kinds of efforts. Yeah. You know, yeah. if we if 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 the U.S. remains a credible, stable partner committed to small d democratic norms and institutions mm. in the West, mm. it makes it a whole lot harder for Chinese intelligence agents to draw that wedge between the U.S. and Europe, it 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 hurts the entire Western alliance to act and think this way. Well, this is it, and from a warfare point of view, that's perfect because it means if your enemy is divided, you don't really have to fight yeah. them anymore. Um, which again yeah. is behind active measures with Russia as well. Russia have been doing this for the last twenty years. Yeah, it's been famously said that Russia is at war with the West, but the West is not at war with Russia. And that's the problem at the moment. We're waking up to this idea that actually Russia is at, considers itself at war with the West at the moment. Um, and maybe China feels that way too. Maybe they feel they're at war with the West also, because it certainly is starting to feel that way. Um, and these sort of actions are concerning. Well, the Chinese system, under Xi especially, is trying to pitch an alternative way of organizing and managing human society mm. that is in complete opposition to what the West has offered since the Enlightenment. You know, and you could even, yeah, you could say since World War II, but you could even draw it back to the Enlightenment. You know, freedom of thought, freedom of expression, freedom of, of religion, liberal economic rules, mm. you know. Mm. The Chinese system is opposed to all of that. And it pitches that, Ours is restrictive. Yes, you don't have all those freedoms, but it's also not chaos, as small-d democracy offers. 
you know that's 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 what they're pitching and so yeah their their efforts are in in total opposition to the western way of life indeed and uh, certainly yeah they don't look like they're being shy about uh, their aims do you <laughs> know no thanks for that matt so yeah i mean like uh, last year we spoke about the case of chris cash um who was a researcher mm-hmm. working in britain's parliament and he was arrested on suspicion of spying um, and Cash was the director of an influential China policy group that had links to parliamentarians, civil servants, and other think tank um, uh, members on China issues. And, you know, Cash has denied being a spy for the Chinese government, and it's still not clear at this time whether he's innocent or guilty. But certainly um, there's a lot of strong feelings that he he was the sort of perfect, sort of, should we say, target for the Chinese intelligence services um, and because of his connections to people. Then I mentioned earlier we had Christina Lee, who MI5 issued an alert about because she had established links to the Communist Party and she was paying money to MPs in the UK. Last year as well, Channel 4, the broadcaster, um, have a strand, documentary strand called Dispatches, uh, which is an investigative journalism program. And in that show, they make claims that uh, Chinese agents with diplomatic and unofficial cover of prof- um, have actually been influential across universities across the country. Um, And they alleged that the University of Nottingham closed its School of Contemporary Chinese Studies in 2016 in response to pressure from Beijing uh, because its head, Professor Steve Tsang, openly criticised the Chinese Communist Party. So it is believed that Beijing managed to get the school closed because of that criticism. And then there's also claims that at Imperial College in London, a leading computer scientist collaborated with researchers at a Chinese university to publish papers on the use of artificial intelligence weaponry that could be used to the benefit of the Chinese military. And also uh, Meta last year issued a report that's saying that China was behind the largest ever digital influence operation with um, groups linked to the Communist Party and Chinese law enforcement peppering more than 50 social media platforms with pro-Beijing messages. Um, and apparently on Facebook, clandestine users with ties to the um, Chinese government racked up more than 550,000 followers by spouting lies about the US's alleged role in creating COVID-19 and also criticizing Washington's support of Taiwan. Now, in the grand scheme of things, 550,000 followers isn't that much. So how effective these things are is open to debate, but they're certainly trying. They're certainly trying. And there's plenty of evidence to, you know, to basically say that you people need to be a bit cautious about all this. Yeah. Keeping our China theme, let's move on to the spy balloon, which is coming up to the year's anniversary of it being shot down. Almost a year. Yeah. yeah. Oh well, get yeah. a, a nice uh, drink and <laughs> toast yeah. the demise of the spy balloon. Think back to the memories, yeah. Um, but Matt, what is there any new information that's sort of come out that you've seen? Yeah, so there's a uh, an article in NBC News by Courtney Cube and Carol Lee. It's called U.S. Intelligence Officials Determined the Chinese Spy Balloon Used a U.S. Internet Provider to Communicate. So here's some of the details. U.S. intelligence officials had determined that the Chinese spy balloon that flew across the U.S. last February used a commercially available U.S. network for communication. The balloon connected to a U.S.-based company to send and receive communications from China, primarily related to navigation, enabling it to send burst transmissions of high-bandwidth data. The Biden administration sought a secret court order from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, that's FISA, to collect intelligence on the balloon while it was over the U.S. The court's ruling has not been disclosed. 
which I mean, they probably, I'm sure, got the the permission to do so. I don't see why they wouldn't. Um, the U.S. company, identified by officials, denied the balloon's use of its network based on its own investigation and discussions with U.S. officials. The National Security Council declined to comment, and the Chinese embassy spokesperson stated that the balloon used for meteorological research accidentally drifted into U.S. airspace. Chinese intelligence officials had previously used commercially available service providers in other countries for covert communication. The U.S. effort to monitor the balloon's communications may explain claims of obtaining more intelligence from the device than it collected while flying over the U.S. Well, yeah. Yeah, that's what I've always suspected. I think the reason yeah. that balloon was allowed to stay in the air for so long is because the U.S. probably wants to crack some encryption. And once they did, they got this lovely gateway into the uh, Chinese intelligence systems uh, and got yeah. a nice peek in there. Yeah, I'm not sure who, who got the better end of that deal in the end. But uh, yeah. there was certainly, again, a lot of criticism of the Biden administration. Um, I think here's a wider theme. I think the problem is today there's a big disconnect in the public consciousness about about like how the military work and think um and it does lead to some very strange talking points on the internet so to my mind when i saw that that balloon was around i figured that obviously there's something interesting there and there's a reason why it's kept up because the american air force could have shot that thing down on day one and there would be a very good reason why they didn't and it is just amazing all the wild nonsensical speculation which leads to them people criticizing President Biden for being weak on national security or whatever. Um, And I think largely it's just because a lot of people just don't know how things actually work. Um, And it's very frustrating to see, I think. And And it just leads to wild, nonsensical speculation on Twitter. Yes. So the balloon passed over the northern plains region of the U.S. So like North Dakota, Montana, Wyoming, well within sight of our three uh, ICBM fields. Mm. So that's F.E. Warren, mm. Malmstrom, and Minot Air Force bases, right? And in this article, uh, General Van Herc, who's the commander of NORAD, uh, says they worked with U.S. Strategic Command to reduce the release of emergency action messages so the balloon couldn't intercept them. Mm. So emergency mm. action messages are issued from the National Military Command Center in the Pentagon and direct the use of nu- of, of nuclear-capable forces. So like... Yeah, it's like the highest priority traffic inside mm. the U.S. Armed Forces, mm. right? Mm. That basically, yeah, directs any U.S. Uh, nuclear-capable force, whether that's a ballistic missile submarine or one of these um, uh, missile squadrons uh, that, that maintain, you know, like the, the silos or um, strategic bombers, B-2s, B-52s, B-1s. B-1s carry nuclear-armed... I think they, they can, can whether they do, they do or they not. Can. Another matter, they can, but yeah. part of strategic command. I'm not sure yeah. about that. But B-2s and B-52s, yes, absolutely. Um, right, so they were aware of this and took measures to, to, to prevent the Chinese from collecting that information, which to me, I mean, I think I even said this at the time, like looking at the flight plan, that's entirely... Let, it went like directly over that area and you look at that in concert with china's own sort of renewed focus on developing its 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 own nuclear force posture it makes sense to me that they would have a lot of interest in in how our own nuclear command and control system operates right i want to go back to sort of the point of the article that nbc doesn't say 
who the U.S. service provider was. Um, they say they don't want to like blow the source by by saying it. Um, it's curious if if you had any 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 thought as to who it, it might have be, been. No, I I don't know. So the balloon was operating at like sixty thousand feet, right? Mm. Which is like twice the twice the height of a commercial airliner, mm. right? Flying across the country. So that's really really high up. Yeah, even right? higher than a drone actually, because the drones usually operate about fifty. 3,000 feet, I believe. Right. Um, so you think, okay, at that height, what could operate? There's no cell signal up there, you know? So it has to be satellite, right? Oh. <laughs> Who has the infrastructure to operate and 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 markets to you know commercial aircraft, private, private jets and stuff. Yep. The um, penny has to dropped. put their <laughs> <laughs> yes, that would be commercially available off the shelf equipment that could be used within North America yeah. to communicate with a reliable satellite based system. And again, the article does not say, but I don't know who else it would be if not Starlink. Yeah. Well, answers on a postcard to X. <laughs> X support because <laughs> they're not being very helpful at the moment. But um, yeah, no. no, no, definitely. I think yeah, you might be right there. Um, it has to be Starlink. I don't know who else it would be. Yeah, unless yeah, um, unless they're piggybacking off because there are obviously um, you know you got uh, all these sort of commercial satellites that do photography and things. You can like piggyback. It's a bit like you know you can use a, a nanny cam to do things uh -huh. um you know you can use it as a sort of to hack stuff i have no idea how you do that but um you can use it as i guess a node to to send a signal somewhere else so um if it weren't starlink there is a possibility it could be uh, uh targeting other commercial satellites that are not as well connected or spread out as starlink but yeah starlink makes a lot of sense but yeah uh-huh yeah <laughs> yeah Interesting. i mean i'm thinking like there's like a what like iridian um yeah iridium um inmarsat is is mostly geared toward maritime shipping yeah. maritime operations yeah. um thraya is another one that comes to mind but their network is i think mostly geared at like the middle east and asia um others oh, off the top of my head I'm not I'm not sure. I mean to me Starlink is just they they have the scale, they have they have the constellation in place to do it. Um, you know, the reliability, the sort of it, the article talks about also how they like how these balloons like to operate with um off the shelf available US equipment, US made equipment, mm. which makes sense because you think if it, if, okay, the likelihood that this is going to get shot down or, or, or intercepted is quite high, right? So if the Chinese are going to lose the asset, you know, why would you put your own internally produced really good stuff mm. aboard? Mm. You know, um, it, it makes sense to just have, yeah, US based commercially available stuff that if you lose it, okay, you're not losing like a, a, a sophisticated national asset, right? Um, yeah, what's at what's a widely available US based commercial off the shelf equipment that you could use? Starlink, mm, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So, or well, time, yeah. time will tell, which is a common phrase in this podcast these days. Time will tell, yeah, 
um we will see where where that goes um yeah but uh, but there we go so um should we move on to our final story of of espresso martini today um yes so a man has been found guilty of spying on a london-based tv channel um which is called iran international and he was um allegedly helping terror plotters so Margomed Hussein Dovatev was convicted of attempting to carry out hostile reconnaissance at the former site of the Persian language media company Iran International in London. Dovatev was arrested after security guards at the Chiswick Business Park, where Iran International was based at the time, grew concerned about his activities. He had been taking a keen interest in the building and was spotted conducting surveillance. Detectives found Dovatev flew from Vienna to Gatwick Airport on the morning of the 11th of February 2023, and from there he went straight to the Chiswick Business Park in a minicab. The media company had received serious threats from Iran against its staff due to its reporting on political and social issues in Iran, and Dovatev's phone, which was recovered and analysed by detectives, revealed that he had researched the building before arriving in the UK. So he was convicted of attempting to collect information likely to be useful under the Section 58 of the Terrorism Act in the at the uh, at a trial in the Old Bailey. So he was convicted for that. And despite uh, his arrest, Dovatev has never disclosed who he was working for, but there is sufficient evidence to indicate his involvement in terrorist-related activity. And then details of the plot, which have been uncovered by the British news outlet ITV News, has said that there were plans to kill the journalists Simma Sabat and Fardad Fahazad, who are both employees at the Iran International Channel. So, um, yeah, quite a worrying sort of development there. And thankfully... Um, Security Guard did their job and Counterterrorism Command could do theirs. So, Matt, I don't know if you had any sort of thoughts on, on this one. And this guy told the police that he was filming the Chiswick Business Park because he admired the architecture, right? He thought the architecture was really stunning. I wonder where yes. he got that line from. I, is a Salisbury Cathedral on the same architectural <laughs> tour of the UK? Do you guys like, are there posters well, of the Chiswick yeah, Business Park at Heathrow be. when you come in? Like, Salisbury Cathedral, Chiswick Business Park, uh, Big Ben, um, uh, the Tower Bridge. Like, you got to see them all. Funnily enough, it is in a Bollywood movie um, that I can't remember the name of. uh, And it is quite a cool-looking, metallic-y kind of building. But apart from that, uh, I don't think he can really justify spending the amount of time he spent there, really. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Can he name that Bollywood movie? That's the question. (laughs) I, I... Maybe I don't know. Um, it 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 it's yeah. He's he's operationally casing casing the joint. You know, um, it it does not seem to be that that he was you know like the button pusher, so to speak. You know, he was not going to be the one to have gone and and do something. He's basically just a cutout that was sent. You know, to record footage of uh, of the building, you know, placement of security cameras, guard desks, that kind of thing, you know, windows, um the setback from the street, I don't know, stuff like that, right? Um that then it would have been used to packaged up with a bunch of other material that then, you know, the actual people who who would have been the button pushers there um would have would have acted on. Interesting yeah. job. I wonder how many what the employment prospects that that are, you know, and how many 
places you go per year and stuff like that and whether you ever know what it was all for yeah i wonder how much it pays like mm. if, it's, if the pay is decent or something you and know there's health insurance and all that there's certainly yeah. not any legal support by the looks of things but do we know for sure that this was part of a i i, I read the article last late last night and some of the details escaped me unfortunately um do we know for sure if this was part of a confirmed operational plan to target the building or people who were there or are they just sort of scoping it out yeah, I think from what I've read, um, there's enough to convict them because of his his history, apparently, and past terrorism. Whether um, they, I don't think they've got enough evidence to say he was there to kill particular people. Right. Um, that was an ITV news thing that came up later on. Yeah. Uh, but from what I've read of the article and the Metropolitan Police information on it, I've not seen anything which says he had like profiles of people um which again if he's the reconnaissance person um then you know that makes some sense doesn't it it may have just been um i mean they were right to you know arrest the guy and 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 convict him i mean he was for sure like operation doing operational surveillance of of the building um but rather than it being part of an imminent attempt to target uh employees or something of Mm. of of the studio um, it, it may have been more of just them Iranian intelligence putting, um, putting like case files together on on you know distant groups and stuff operating Possibly. in in the UK that they could then you know pull out of the drawer and say you know mm. okay we're gonna do that now if that makes sense well, that particular channel has been under permanent armed police um protection um since this plot. And I think I maybe I, I suspect maybe MI5 and Counterterrorism Command might have have some extra information that's sort of out of the public domain that kind of connects sure. it to something more solid. Because yeah, when you put it that way, it doesn't sound very solid, does it? But um, yeah, I'm not sure. That's an interesting one. That yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, cool story. We I guess we'll have to find out more. But uh, but yeah, he's now um, you know behind bars. Um, but yeah, it's not the first time Iranian journalists have been targeted or harassed. Um, there was a, a a lady called Anita Shams for BBC Persia who, uh, back in 2019, told the Human Rights Council how she and her female colleagues faced constant harassment by the Iranian government. And it was an incident that involved fake a fake pornographic image being sent to her to the son of a journalist. Um, so apparently sexual indecency is the main technique used to discredit female Iranian journalists in the West. Huh. Um, and then Freedom House issued a report in December saying that at least 26 governments had targeted reporters um, abroad in the last decade in a process known as transnational repression. And the Iranian government is among one of the worst perpetrators of transnational uh, repression, the report found. And Freedom House, if you don't know, um, they were founded in 1941 to rally policymakers um, uh, in the fight against, uh, sorry, to rally policymakers and the broadly isolationist American public around the fight against Nazi Germany. Um, And they've been around ever since then. So Freedom House is a very interesting organization who kind of, uh, uh, it's all about sort of freedom and democracy and devoted to support the defense of democracy around the world. So um, they do reports quite often on these sort of topics. So, um, yeah, so so definitely there has been an ongoing threat to Iranian journalists um, and physical threats. It seems to be an escalation. Um, 
I'm not aware in the UK of an Iranian journalist being killed by the Iranian government, but it might have been a historical case I just don't know of. I know of um, a Libyan student who was allegedly murdered by Colonel Gaddafi's regime on British soil um, in the, I think, the in the 80s. But other than that, I'm trying to think now, but yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not an authority on that, but uh, maybe, maybe again, somebody can let us know if if there is a case that stands out. But I didn't see one. I was having a look through today. So I think that's it for espresso martini. So um, Matt, thank you for joining me on this. Let us move over to extra shots. Um, again, listeners, if you wish to join us on extra shot, please just go to Patreon.com/secrets and spies, and you can subscribe there. Select the level that works for you. You'll get a free couple coasters and you'll get access to extra shot plus our previous extra shots too because we're getting a bit of a collection building now. So uh, yeah, thank you very much for listening and we'll see you on Patreon. Bye everybody. Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies. Thank you.